Everyone knows it's Easter, right? Okay, if you were here on Christmas, we would be very excited to tell you that we're celebrating the birth of the Messiah. You're here on Easter. We're very excited to tell you we're celebrating the risen Christ. I think for most of us, we get the basic gist of what Easter is. Uh, I wonder... I wonder if we have a clear sense of why it matters to me. Why does it matter to you? Why does it matter to us? Why, what does it change about life uh, that we celebrate the risen Christ? And so we're going to start in Genesis 3. And I think what I hope you see from Genesis 3 is that the Bible answers a really significant question about the world. Uh, a significant question that we see answered in Genesis 3 is, why do we look around and see so much evidence of brokenness? Why do we look around and have the sense that things are broken, not as they should be? We speak as ought often, like it's not right. That's not how it should be. So we know that there's a right, and we know that a lot of what we see isn't that. So we want to start with Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes you have to go backwards before you can go forwards. And so let's go backwards to Genesis 3. I want to answer that question. Why do we see so much pain, suffering, despair, difficulty? And how does that help us understand why Jesus had to come and what he did and the significance of the resurrection for our lives today? Genesis chapter 3. For those of you that maybe are not familiar with that particular uh, chapter of the Bible follows Genesis 1 and 2. You probably figured that out on your own. Genesis 1 and 2 give us the sense that mm, it looks like God created everything and it looks like he's got a purpose for it. It was made by God for God, by him, for him. Adam and Eve come on the scene. Why are they there? As with all of creation, they're made to give glory to God. And you have this garden scene where everything seems ideal. They walk with God in the garden, right? There is no shame, no guilt, no hiding, no brokenness. Everything is right. Everything is in order. God says this is good. And as we talked about last week, he never stops bringing about, trying to bring about his good for us. Enter Satan, enter the serpent, enter the deceiver, enter the liar, uh, and, and what happens? Satan comes and, and asks a very powerful question. Did God really say that you, you couldn't eat just from any tree that you wanted? Enter doubt, enter distrust, enter deception. And what does Eve do? Looks at the tree. God says, stay away, keep far from this thing. She looks at it, and in the sequence, we see that looking gives birth to desire. See, uh, Satan tells her, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Who doesn't want to be like God? That sounds interesting. That doesn't seem to be a bad thing. Uh, you know, give me two scoops. She looks. She sees. And it becomes attractive to her, and she eats, Right? How much damage has the enemy done in our life by getting us to look at things that we shouldn't look at? How much damage has the enemy done in our life by getting us to listen to voices that we should not listen to? And so we see right away 
that God's instruction for them is actually good. It's not a bunch of rules and limitations to take all the fun and joy out of life, that it's actually good. We know that because the moment they rebel against his rule, the moment they rebel against his authority and his instruction, everything goes sideways. How do we see that? Well, sin does many things, but two things that sin does virtually every time is it multiplies. It affects not just me, but it affects others. And so Adam then also takes and eats and brings judgment. Not only does it multiply to others, but the consequences, the severity of the things that we do in obstinance of of God's rule and his instruction always lead to more severe consequences than we ever imagined. Three that we see right away in Genesis chapter 3, we see the Lord is going to remove them from the garden, right? They are removed from this idyllic scene. They were removed from his presence in the way that they had known it, where there was uh, no barrier between them, where they were there together doing what they were made for, doing what they were created for. Now they're separated from God. Right, and they can't get back in. And I just have this sense of, or this picture of a mom maybe holding a, a toddler and, and handing the toddler over, and the toddler's grabbing and holding on to mom and doesn't want to let go, and they're driven out of the garden, out of God's presence. Right, there is now sin, and God can't be in the presence uh, of that sin, and so they're separated. We see that humanity is now at odds with its creator. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, you were taken from the dust. Your life is going to now be to toil and to work and to labor in the dust. You are going to work the land, and the land is going to fight against you. It is not going to be easy. It's going to take more from you than you give. It's going to be difficult, and then you will return to the dust. We see that humanity is now at odds with the world around us. It doesn't doesn't work together. Uh, It doesn't all fit. It's laborious it's difficult heavy demands upon us god goes to the woman god goes to eve and and says eve uh, your relationships childbearing it's going to be difficult Uh, those of you that are mothers just the compounding difficulty of being a mother it's not just childbirth is it it doesn't all your difficulty doesn't end at childbirth does it it's difficult I was really quick. I don't want to touch that. And then your relationships. This beautiful relationship of, of a husband and a wife. You are made to work together. You are made to complement each other. You are made as partners. You are made to work with each other. It says you are going to find that you are now uh, hardwired because of your sin to work against each other. And so we're at odds with our creator. We are at odds with the creation around us. And now we are at odds with each other. And so we just see from Genesis 3 the best explanation, I believe, to why we look around and see brokenness in the world. It's everywhere, right? The fracture is far and wide. It multiplies and it is deeper than we realize. Some of you like to pay attention to current events around the world. You might know that in Syria, the conflict that's going on there has already taken 400,000 lives. It hasn't been going on for all that long. 400,000 lives and almost 12 million people are displaced. About half in the country displaced, about half as refugees scattering. Uh, Some of you know uh, Afghanistan. There's been 
somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 12 civilian casualties each of the last few years. The United States has almost invested $20 billion in foreign aid. Can we buy peace? Peace is not about money, is it? Peace is not about a military. Peace is not about morality. Peace is about us and God. And we see that from Genesis chapter 3. And we see it play out in our lives every time we open the newspaper. The problem is, is the fracture is not just someone else's issue. It's not just something that happens across the ocean. It's not just something that happens outside of Douglas County. Right? It happens in our homes. And we know in our hearts that the fracture is far and wide. It's a, it's a labor daily to give my day to the Lord because everything in me wants to take hold of my day and make my day about myself, about my recognition, about my comfort. At home, as a husband, as a father, it's a labor Because everything in me wants to be about serving myself. Put my needs before my wife's. Put my needs before my kids. To live how I want, when I want. Because I've earned it. I deserve it. That's my right. I deserve to be happy. So we see the fracture is far and wide. That sin is our greatest need the brokenness in us is our greatest need and so that's why we understand jesus resurrection resurrection his offer of forgiveness to be the greatest gift imaginable because it meets our greatest need if you have your bibles turn to luke 24 we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of the resurrection narrative you might imagine this great news jesus followers would have been all about it they would have been early adopters they would have got on board and thrown a party and celebrated the beautiful thing of scripture is that the scripture god's word to us records the ugly truth that we are slow to get on board with god's purposes no surprise his followers were slow to get on board uh, with his purposes we're going to see that uh, fold out unfold here In Luke 24, we'll start with the first three verses. Just a tiny bit of context. Jesus' body went in the ground on Friday. It's now Sunday. Jesus' followers were going like this. They were riding high. Their influence in the community was growing. Their notoriety in the community was growing. Those following with them were getting excited. Jesus had just come into Jerusalem. There's all of this excitement. And then it comes crashing down think about stock market circa 2008 crashing down it plummets and they're scattered and they're asking these huge questions have we wasted our life because our leader's gone jesus was crucified he was killed he was targeted he was tortured is that going to happen to us too so they're in hiding they're afraid they're asking questions about what have we given our lives to they're They're afraid. They're wondering, where do we go from here? We haven't known anything else for the last three years. Where do we go from here? I want you to see that Jesus' life, Jesus' resurrection, the good news comes in and disrupts, interrupts. It crashes the anti-party of their discouragement and despair and confusion. Jesus meets them there. 
Luke 24, 1 through 3. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They show up to do what was customary to finish the uh, burial process, the embalming, and there's no body. We're going to see in a minute that, that they were confused, that they were discouraged, that they had no idea what's going on. And what's really interesting, as Jesus had already told them he would die and that he would be raised three days later, but instead they are fixated on their circumstances. All they can see is what is in front of them, and they totally forget what Jesus had said and miss what Jesus was doing. Do we ever do that? Do we ever look at our circumstances and totally forget what God's word says and totally miss what Jesus is doing? Some of you like puzzles. We like puzzles in our house. We have small kids, so we have small puzzles, puzzle counts of like 50 to 100. You can do that in about eight minutes. Disrupt it and destroy it in about eight seconds. But you can put it together in about eight minutes. When we look at our circumstances and we forget what Jesus has said and forget and miss what he's doing uh, in life, it's like trying to put one of those puzzles together but not having all the pieces. It doesn't matter how good of a puzzle builder you are. If you don't have all the pieces, it's incomplete and unsatisfying. It doesn't matter how hard you work at the puzzle or how long you work at the puzzle. If you don't have all the pieces, it's incomplete, isn't it? And unsatisfying. The ladies come and they they look around. They forget what Jesus has said and they miss what Jesus is doing. Jesus has the pieces. Some of us are there right now and we're trying to put the pieces of our puzzle, of our lives together and the picture is unclear it is foggy we're missing pieces and we're just working harder working longer and it's not making sense it's not coming together i I would just say if you're there this morning where that puzzle of life is unclear it's not making sense i I would want to say to you that that is a very very holy place because it means that you're in the process of understanding and discovering that you have limitations that there are certain things you can't do for yourself and it leads us to call on the one who's got all the pieces it leads us to the one who holds the key jesus resurrection his offer of forgiveness is the greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. These ladies take this message, uh, they look in the tomb, and they're going to be met by some angels. Uh, And the angels are going to, it's kind of comical, because they're basically going to say, what are you surprised at? Why are you confused? We talked about this. You know, you ever had a teacher? We We talked about this. We did this in class yesterday. Not only does Jesus' resurrection uh, interrupt them, not only does it catch them off guard, but it forces them to reevaluate everything 
they know. I think as we give consideration to Jesus' resurrection, it should cause us to reevaluate everything we know. From Luke 24, 4 through 7. It says, while they were perplexed, perplexed seems like an understatement, doesn't it? While they were perplexed, while they were scratching their heads, looking around, wondering what? Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Almost as if they're unsure what the ladies are doing. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And on the third day rise. Why are you confused? Don't you remember what what Jesus said? Don't Don't you remember what he told you? I'd suggest that if God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, it should cause us to reevaluate what we know. And it kind of begs the question, is this something we should take seriously? Are, is there credible evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead? Because if there's a compelling case to be made, then we must take seriously what he said about who he was, about who we are, and about our lives. Is there credible information that might convince us? Is there credible information that makes at least a reasonable case that Jesus actually raised from the dead? Uh, just a couple of points uh, for this morning. One, there's an abundance of evidence there was actually an empty tomb. There's an abundance of evidence that people believed they saw Jesus after he died. They believed they spoke with him, interacted with him, after he died, and then you have the case of his followers. They adamantly believe he rose again. Uh, going back to the tomb. The tomb was empty. The religious leaders who opposed Jesus didn't deny that the tomb was empty. Do you remember what they did? They grabbed the security guards, gave them some money, and said, shut your mouth. If anyone asks you a question, tell them Jesus' followers came and took the body. They didn't have a body. Tell anyone who asks that Jesus' followers took the body. They couldn't disprove that the tomb was empty. They could only come up with a lie to try to convince the public otherwise. The Bible also records that women were first on the scene. If you were trying to sell something, if you were trying to make a compelling argument to convince people to believe something in the first century, you would not write that women were first on the scene. You would not write their account because that would be counter evidence of its historical validity that wouldn't support your argument. At this point in time, a woman's point of view was not allowed in court. It had virtually no value, and yet the scripture records that women were first on the scene. Surprising? Not really. Isn't that kind of how the Lord works? How about the post-resurrection appearances? It's really interesting that in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually lists, the author of 1 Corinthians actually lists people who Jesus showed up, who Jesus showed himself to. And there's numerous people, individuals and groups, numerous places at numerous times. It wasn't just one time that happened so far away before cell phones, so we couldn't possibly prove it. Paul says he came at numerous times, numerous people in numerous places, individuals and 
groups, and he names names. And so if you're going to name names and your story is not credible, now you've got a whole bunch of people who can disprove you. No, uh, Paul's crazy. I don't, don't know what he's smoking. I, I didn't see Jesus. Paul names names. The third piece is, is the testimony of Jesus' closest followers. Remember what happens as Jesus is being crucified, as Jesus is being arrested in the garden? They flee. They scatter. Remember what happens as Jesus is on trial? Even Peter, right? The rock, Mr. Faithful, self-proclaimed, you know, best follower of Jesus, crumbles in the weight of what is happening, doesn't he? Some of you uh, like boxing, and you've seen old YouTube videos of Mike Tyson boxing. They're awesome. The disciples fold like someone getting a Mike Tyson uppercut. They just collapse to the canvas. There is no life left in them as Jesus is crucified. And just days and weeks and months later, not only do they get up off the canvas so to speak, but they become the most powerful missionary force in the world. They scatter to the ends of the known world, preaching a resurrected Jesus. And when given the choice to either die or go back on what they said, to recant, they choose to die. How do you get off the floor from Mike Tyson and become emboldened as the greatest missionary force the world has ever seen? I'd suggest that as just as we look at some of the data, that if there's a shred of possibility that God exists, then it is reasonable to believe that the first century eyewitness accounts are accurate, that God did, in fact, raise Jesus from the dead. And that's a really big deal for us, because if God can raise Jesus from the dead, that that means then that he has power over our sin that holds us captive. Romans 6 talks about us being enslaved to sin as a ramification of Genesis 3 and and the fall. If God has the power to raise the son from the dead, his power to forgive our sins, and he has power over our future. Some of you are familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there are all sorts of great things in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul speaks to the centrality of Jesus' resurrection as the basis for Christian hope. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if this didn't happen, if this were disproved, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If God could not raise Jesus, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, Paul is going to say, then we are the most to be pitied. We are still stuck. We are still dead. That Jesus rose from the dead proves that God has power over death, power over our sins, and we can truly be set free. In verses 22 and 23, Uh, Paul continues and says the power and the proof of the resurrection embolden us to look forward in anticipation to God's power to raise us to be with him one day. Verse 22 and 23 say this, For as in Adam all die, right? Wrath of God on all of us because of Adam and what we've done since. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ 
the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ as the first fruits, Christ first. Christ as a sign that the rest of us who follow him will one day be raised also to be with God. So if God has the power to raise Jesus, he has the power to raise us to be with him one day. If you like reading Revelation, fascinating book for those of you that have curious minds, you can spore or spend an infinite amount of time there. But if you look in Revelation 22, there will be a description of what this is going to be like when we're with the Lord. And it's going to look a lot like the Garden of Eden. A lot of restoration of God with us. No distance. What we were made for. Who we were made for. And he is actively working to restore that. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has power to forgive our sins and power to raise us to be with him one day forever for eternity. Now, that's really good news. You might think that Jesus' followers would have been all about it. Listen to what happens when the ladies get back from talking with the angels and share this story with Jesus' followers who also heard from Jesus' mouth he would die and be raised again after three days. Verse 8 says, And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. I imagine they were excited. You ever been excited to tell a story? They show up in the room, all these mopey followers of Jesus. Guess what? He's not dead. He rose again, just as he said. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and the Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman, other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. What was that like? Is they're telling the disciples that Jesus did exactly what he said, and the disciples have ESPN on. They're not even listening to the ladies. They're watching the television, and to them it was an idle tale. They don't even take them seriously. See, Jesus' life and, and Jesus' resurrection um, compels us to deal with our doubt. It meets us there and compels us to deal with our doubt. Certainly, in a room this size, uh, we have people all over the spectrum with spiritual doubt. Is it freeing to know that Jesus' closest followers who walked with him for years, who heard him preach, watched him do miracles, walked, lived side by side, and they have doubts too? Sometimes we think our doubts um, mean we're disqualified. Uh, Sometimes we think that our doubts um, mean that God is disappointed with us, tired of dealing with us. Uh, And we see Jesus' closest followers had these doubts. And so the question I I just got to ask is, what do you do with your doubts? If you're here this morning and and you're thinking, yeah, resurrection kind of seems like a fairy tale. This is nice. I was invited to come, so I'll come. And... uh, uh, I'll sit here, and, uh, and I hope this doesn't go long. Um, what do you do with your doubt? Some of us, some of us sort of take all of the things that are supernatural and just kind of set them aside. Uh, this, this can't be true. Uh, this is a nice story. I can't believe you all believe this, but, but this is a nice story, and I imagine it could be encouraging to someone. Uh, kind of like maybe reading a Dr. Seuss book, right? Where each page you turn, it, it gets sillier and sillier and more ridiculous and more ridiculous. And, and so some of us just dismiss the supernatural entirely. And, and if you're in that boat this morning, I would just encourage you, you're familiar 
probably with the line, there are no atheists in foxholes, and I suspect that there will come a moment in life where life will begin to swallow you whole, and there will be this point, uh, this choice that you have to make to either cry out for help or be swallowed whole. Some of us just kind of step back from all things that are spiritual. How are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to understand this is confusing. I don't get it. I really wasn't raised this way, or I saw some really weird things growing up under the uh, guise of spirituality. Uh, and so, so we just back off entirely from the topic. And I can relate to that. That's kind of how I interact with all things that are building or construction or tool related. And so I, I do think God has a sense of humor in, in bringing our family to a place where It's unbelievable how handy, how skilled, how knowledgeable all you people are and how gracious you have been with our family. I know that there's things that you think about us as you've seen projects that we've done and you think that's not how I would have done it. In fact, that's not how anyone should do it. But how many of you know uh, not trying, that's what I do with projects, I don't try. Not trying is a really good way to stay in a bad place. Some of us set aside and and belittle and mock the supernatural. Some of us just sort of recuse ourselves from all of spiritual conversations. It's overwhelming. I can't get my arms around it. It's too much. For some of us, we've seen a really bad example. Some of us were raised in homes where religion was used to just oppress and beat uh, persons into submission. Some of us have seen really bad examples. And so we've just said, nope, not me, never. If this is what following Jesus is like, is this is what Christianity is, I want nothing to do it. Thanks, no thanks. And if you're there this morning, if you're in that boat, uh, I would just say, I know people who've gotten terrible medical advice, but when I get sick, I go to the doctor. (laughs) I know people who have had bad experiences with medical professionals, but I absolutely would never suggest recommending uh, that we write off the knowledge and instruction of our medical professional people. Uh, Some of you are committed to diet and exercise, and you know someone who's been even more committed to diet and exercise than you, and they've had a heart attack or some other tragic health experience. doesn't mean you write off the value of diet and exercise, right? So Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead. Let's look to him. If you're in that boat this morning and you've had a really bad example. I apologize for that. We are filled with bad examples. And sometimes uh, we come to church thinking this is where I'll get a view of what maybe a good person looks like. And, and if, again, if that's you, maybe just see this more as a hospital, not a museum, uh, as a hospital, right, of sick and ailing who have at least said, I, I'm going to go to the hospital. I don't, I don't feel well. What do we do with our doubt? Um, from verse 12, uh, let me show you what Peter does with his doubt. Again, uh, Peter, great guy for us to watch. Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Peter says dumb things. If you're a teacher, you've told your kids there are no stupid questions. If you read much of Peter, you realize there are actually very bad questions, and Peter asks almost all of them uh, in the Bible. From verse 12, but Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. 
he went home marveling at what happened. What did Peter do with his doubt? He ran to the tomb. Peter said, if this is true, I want to see for myself. I will figure this out with my own two eyes. And he ran to the tomb. Did he believe them initially? Enough at least to get off the couch and run to the tomb. How do we run to the tomb? Uh, If you're here this morning with significant doubts, how do you run to the proverbial tomb? Start a conversation with the Lord. God, would you show yourself to me? I I, got to know, would you show yourself to me? If the Father went to the effort to send the Son, do you think that his intent is to stay hidden from those who seek him out? Start a conversation. Lord, would you show yourself to me? Uh, He has recorded a a whole bunch of, of words. They're here. Start in here. Find someone who's a little bit further in the journey than you. When we begin a project at home, um, you, most of you know it because I've asked you how you've done it, what you've done, what tools you've used, what mistakes you've made, and I might ask you to, hey, would you come over for dinner and then try to finagle that dinner into a, would you come and look at everything that I'm doing and keep me from making stupid mistakes? Find someone that's further along in the journey with you and invite them over to dinner and finagle that conversation into a spiritual conversation. Start a conversation with God. Begin to pour yourself into his word. Find someone further along in the journey. Just run to the tomb. I want to go back to Genesis 3 real quick. Uh, Genesis 3.15 records what happens immediately after Adam and Eve have eaten and this self-discovery of, oh, shoot. God comes to the serpent first, not last. God comes to the serpent first, and you might think God's going to fly off the handles here. You might think God's going to lose it and then go to Adam and Eve and lose it again. God has a plan for our brokenness. God's not scared of it. He doesn't run from it. God has a plan for it. He says, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some of your translations say, and he, the offspring of Adam and Eve, down down the genealogy will crush. It says crush, bruise, strike the head of the serpent. How does... Jesus crush, bruise, strike the head of the serpent. He crushes, bruises, strikes the head of the servant as Jesus raises from the dead. As the power of God over death is revealed and a pathway to being restored to God, a pathway back to Eden, a pathway through our brokenness, a pathway to God's plan, a pathway to restore what was broken was made through Jesus. I love that the text ends with Peter marveling, right? So Peter, confused, doubting, not sure. I'll figure this out. I'm going all by myself. Runs to the tomb. And the passage ends with him marveling. You know who's not marveling? The other people who sat on their doubt. The other followers who just sat up in the room and maybe changed the channel and and told the the ladies to to go away. Those who did nothing with their doubt were still there, stuck in their doubt. Peter got off the couch and ran to the tomb. 
And then the text says that he went home marveling. If you've got questions, God's big enough to handle your questions. If you've got doubt, God is big enough to handle your doubt. If you have despair, confusion, he's big enough to handle your, con- your despair and your confusion. Would you run to the tomb? Uh, we're going to conclude our service this morning uh, with a time of worship. And, and I hope you just uh, look and give thoughtful reflection to the words on the screen because each song was thoughtfully chosen around this theme of Jesus paying it all for us. And would you just run to the tomb if you're here trying to make sense of your life and you are clearly sensing your life is that puzzle with a whole bunch of missing pieces? He has the pieces. If you're here and you're trying to make sense of it and you're trying to work harder, work longer to make it work, he has the pieces. We're going to have a team up here afterwards. They would just love to pray with you. Uh, If you have a question, if there's something you want to engage with, something you want to respond to, we'd love to do that with you. There's also cards in your bulletins under your seats in the seat back in front of you. Uh, There's something you want to communicate on there. If you want to just check the box that says yes to Jesus, Put an email, put a phone number. We'll follow up if you want us to. Would you consider Peter ran to the tomb? God did not disappoint. Peter went home marveling. Would you run to the tomb? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that that you handle our questions. You handle our doubt. You handle our difficulty. Uh, You don't shrink away from it. Uh, You don't hold it over our heads. Lord, you don't even... Uh, whitewash the story, you record that those closest to you who heard Jesus' words were confused, were discouraged, were in despair. They doubted. And Lord, so that, that frees us to be honest with our doubt and to come to you with it rather than hiding in the corner, rather than running away from you because of our doubts. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would run to the tomb. So thank you Father, that you raised the Son, that you have power over our past, our present, our future, power over our sin that we have been enslaved to. Lord, may this morning we declare to you, we decide to you that today is the day we want to follow Jesus. Today is the day, Lord, that we want to take hold of what you have done for us and begin life anew. As your word says, as a new creation, Lord, the old has gone. Behold, the new has come. May we together run to the tomb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.